0: Welcome to Power Problems, I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Christopher Lane, Distinguished Professor of International Affairs at Texas A&M University. Chris, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, John.
0: You and Ben Schwartz recently co-authored a long essay for Harper's Magazine on US involvement in the Ukraine war, and I'm going to ask you a lot about that. But before we get there, back in 2006, you published a book called Peace of Illusions, and. You make a lot of worthwhile contributions in it, but a big part of it is describing the nature of U.S. strategy in post-war Europe up to the end of the Cold War and then beyond. There are a lot of self-serving and kind of propagandistic ways that U.S. leaders talk about NATO as being some kind of club of good guys acting as a bulwark against international bad guys, or it's about how the big, strong America has to perpetually protect the helpless little Europe. But at one point, you make a a slightly different case. Uh, You write that Washington, quote, used NATO to foreclose the possibility that the West European states would renationalize their security policies. What did you mean by that?
1: What I meant was that American policymakers during World War II, as the war was going on, sort of thought long and hard about the kind of post-World War II international order they wanted to see. And one of the things they wanted to avoid, in fact, one American policymaker said, Europe is a, uh, a, a broken down trap and we're not going to rebuild that. We want a different kind of Europe after World War II. We don't want to make the mistakes that we made after World War One, And the primary mistake that American policymakers thought was that an Europe, composed of rival great powers, was always going to be a quote-unquote fire trap where geopolitical competition would raise the possibility of conflict. And American policymakers said, well, that drew us into World War One. that drew us into World War Two. We don't want to have it happen again. And sort of to give context to that, I know that the... the phrase unipolar moment or unipolar world really didn't become popular in the discourse about American foreign policy until Charles Krauthammer wrote his article, The Unipolar Moment, in 1991. But in fact, American policymakers, even as World War II was going on, did have a very definite vision of a unipolar world in which the U.S. would be the only great power. Now, obviously, after the World War II ended, the Soviet Union got in the way of that. Um, it's not uh, highly known, but even in the late 1940s, the U.S. did have a covert action problem, ironically, headed by George F. Kennan to try and sow dissension in the Baltic states and Ukraine and cause problems that might lead to the breakup of the Soviet Union. But obviously that did not succeed, and the nuclear standoff uh, between the two superpowers made it too dangerous for the United States to proceed with any further moves to remove the Soviet Union and allow uh, the U.S. to actually achieve unipolar dominance in the post-World War II world. But we all know what happened in 1989 to 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed, and um in fact, the long-term U.S. objective was, was realized. The U.S. emerged as a unipolar-slash-hegemonic power in the post-Cold War world. Um, but the goals for American policy in Europe have remained the same. You know, the Europeans on several occasions, the British in the late 40s, the French um, and the West Germans under De Gaulle, and Adenauer, Uh, The European Union um, in the 1990s with its policy to create a common security policy made a number of attempts to try and create, well, what President, French President Macron talks about these days as a strategically autonomous Europe. And every time Europe has taken a step in that direction of strategic autonomy, the U.S. has responded very hard. To squash those attempts. The US does not want Europe to be an independent or any Europe want Europe as a collectivity or any independent European power like France or Germany to to be strategically autonomous from the United States.
0: So you mentioned how every time European countries start to try to push for some kind of strategic autonomy, the United States kind of quashes those efforts. On the other hand, there's always kind of constant verbal encouragement uh, to to um, gain more responsibility for their own security. So how do you, I mean, th- th- there's sort of different signals being sent here, right?
1: You know, NATO um, is a multilateral alliance, and in theory, it requires unanimous consent to make any major move. But the truth is, that when it comes to geopolitical issues, the U.S. is the dominant member of NATO. Uh, for example, the chain of command runs from the supreme allied commander in Europe, who has always been an American, through the Pentagon to the President of the United States. So Europeans don't really have um, a, a role in the actual chain of command. Um, and the U.S. If you look at, for example, the way NATO forces were deployed during the Cold War, there was still a lot of residual fear of resurgence of German power. Uh, But at the same time, West Germany and its troops were needed as a counterbalance um, to the Soviet Army. Um, So we needed West Germany rearmed. But if you look at the way the German troops were deployed, they were deployed in, in a checkerboard fashion. There would be a, a German division or corps and flanked on either side by troops from, from another NATO member. There was never um, any, what we would call an army or army group, distinctly deployed under German command. So you know, fear of German power. Um, fear of France becoming a leader of a strategically autonomous Europe. United States fought long and hard, ultimately unsuccessfully, but did fight long and hard to prevent France from developing its own independent uh, nuclear forces. So uh, the United States wants to keep Europe as a strategic appendage to American power rather than having Europe emerge as an independent power on its own, or again, to use French President Macron's phrase, um, strategically autonomous. And actually, one of the the best books on this was written, I believe, in 1966 by then-Harvard professor Henry Kissinger. It's called The Troubled Partnership, a title which I think uh, applies not only back in the 60s, but many times even today to relations between the United States and the NATO members in Europe. But what Kissinger said is that American policy was sort of caught in, in an ambiguity with respect to its policy for Europe. That, you know, American policymakers, as we well know, have complained long and hard, almost since the ink was dry in the North Atlantic Treaty in 1949, about the lack of equitable burden sharing. This was one of President Trump's main complaints. The Europeans don't do enough for their own defense. But ironically, every time the Europeans have tried to do, in Washington's eyes, quote-unquote, too much for their own defense, the United States has cracked down hard. And the truth is, the United States likes Europe to be dependent on us for its defense. Um, That gives America enormous power. And it also shows that NATO was not primarily intended as a counterweight to the Soviet Union. It had two other functions. One was to keep peace between the West Europeans, particularly between the French and the West Germans, so that Europe could flourish economically. And because of our economic ties with Europe, the American economy would benefit. And also to prevent, again, this idea that Europe could emerge As a geopolitically independent entity in uh, international politics. So, you know, we we talk a lot about these things, but we, you know, we may complain that the Europeans don't do enough. But whenever they try to do too much, we bring them up uh, cold. We just don't, do not want an independent, militarily independent Europe.
0: So one of the main points that you and Ben try to make in that Harper's essay is that among other things, NATO expansion presented Moscow with a, a threat uh, that it could use to justify uh, uh, invading Ukraine. And, and, um, but you discuss a number of uh, grievances on the Russian side. And one of them that I don't think enough uh, Americans really know about or talk about is the U.S. meddling in Russian elections in the mid-90s, and how this was a kind of exacerbating factor in the U.S. rivalry. Can you explain that episode for us?
1: Well, this would be uh, during the, uh, the Clinton administration, um, and also uh, during the Obama administration. Um, the United States sponsors or gives assistance to a lot of what would be called civil society groups, not just we're not just doing it in Russia, but we've done it throughout East, Eastern Europe um, to promote our agenda. And it's pretty clear what the American agenda has been really since 1945 is to spread democracy because we believe that um, the so-called democratic peace theory is valid, which it actually is not. Policymakers believe it's valid. And what is the democratic peace theory? It is that democracies don't fight other democracies. So, by democratizing uh, Russia, uh, the, we, <laughs> we hold out the idea that a democratic Russia would not have ever invaded Ukraine, for example. So, um, we have to ask ourselves what, what is the real objective of the U.S. in this current conflict? And now there's no smoking gun. There may be someday when we go into the archives. But when the war began in uh, February of 2022, there were a lot of stories in newspapers quoting not just U.S. officials, but senior European officials that suggested pretty strongly that the real goal was to achieve regime change and remove Putin for power. And you see sort of the subtle evidence of this all the time in the way American. Policymakers and the American media talk about this war. It's all it's Vladimir Putin's war. It's all Vladimir Putin. Nobody ever talks about Russia as a state, Russia with a history, with a political culture, with a sense of its own role and place in international politics. It's all Putin. And you know, demonizing Putin may be gratifying psychologically to American policymakers, but it really misses the problem. And the problem is that there are very few people in the Russian elites, even from people who are still liberals to people who are ultra-nationalists, that believe that NATO expansion to the borders of Russia is in Russia's interest. And I I like to joke these days and say that if you went uh, to the corridors of the foreign policy establishment in Washington, both people actually in office and people in the influential think tanks, you would find that their maps don't reflect uh, the labeling of Russia anymore. It's now putania. And the the idea that this is just one man totally divorced from the history and culture and geopolitical identity of Russia uh, is just just wrong. Um, Russia does have, and Russian elites do have this sense of geopolitical identity, which regards NATO expansion as a threat. And not just NATO expansion, because we know that although the the Russians made a lot of noise when the United States decided to undertake the first two rounds of NATO expansion, the ones that brought in Poland and the Czech Republic and Slovakia and Hungary, and then subsequently the Baltic states, the Russians made a lot of noise. They weren't happy, but they acquiesced. But it was always clear that Ukraine was a different case and that the Russians would not acquiesce in Ukraine becoming a member of NATO.
0: We're going to get to more of the causes of the war and, and Putin versus Russia in the analysis, but uh, first I want to provide some more context that you also provide in the Harper's essay. So another aggravating factor in US-Russian relations was the, I think, 2002 US withdrawal from the anti-ballistic missile treaty. Can you provide some of the historical context there and give us a sense of how it looked from Moscow's perspective?
1: Yes. Well, we, we have a, a section in the article where we talk about uh, the role of nuclear weapons and nuclear strategy in U.S. Russian relations. And um, there are two scholars, Kier uh, Lieber, who is at Georgetown, and Darrell Press, who is at Dartmouth, who have written a very important book on current nuclear strategy. And Their conclusion is that the United States has been seeking and in fact may have obtained a credible first strike nuclear advantage vis-a-vis Russia. And ballistic missile defense is an integral part of this because, let me see if I can explain this, because nuclear strategy is pretty opaque and it's hard to explain, but we all know about mutually assured destruction, the idea that if one superpower uses nuclear weapons to strike the other's homeland, it has the credibility to retaliate with a devastating strike. Um, so in essence, two scorpions in a bottle and they'll both die. Well, the Americans have understood that for a long time. And that's why we see overwhelming first strike capability but with the knowledge that we might not destroy all of our adversaries retaliatory capabilities. And that's where ballistic missile defenses come in. The idea is, is that a U.S. first strike could degrade, let's say, Russian retaliatory capability to a low enough point that ballistic missile defenses could take out the remaining retaliatory uh, weapons that the Russians have. So Russians understand this too. And the idea of the U.S. building a effective ballistic missile defense system married with the first strike offensive capability is at least intellectually, at the intellectual level, a threat to to uh, Russian security.
0: So it's throughout the 90s. Um, you know, there are several policies that the United States has that uh, tick Russia off, Um, we expand NATO, we meddle in Russian elections, Um, we get out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty and start uh, creating worries for Russia on the nuclear front, we run through a number of regime change wars and color revolutions that makes Russia nervous. Um, And In the Harper's piece, you you write that, quote, both the global role that Washington has assigned itself generally and America's specific policies towards NATO and Russia have led inexorably to war. And so when you discuss the causes of the war, um, as you were just talking about, people, honestly, I think people tend to cite the narrative that most fully supports their view of it, you know. So when it comes to the question of Ukraine, Russia has historical, cultural, linguistic, religious, and economic ties with Ukraine. But you say that strategic concerns were paramount. And I want to let you make that case for us. Why do you believe that the strategic concerns about US foreign policy in Europe and beyond were paramount in terms of motivating the Russian invasion? Um, and these other motivations tied up in culture and history and economics were subordinate or a, a less direct cause of the war.
1: Well, let me answer your question with my conclusion, and then we'll work our way back and see how I get there. If the United States had offered to Moscow to guarantee that Ukraine would not become a member of NATO, this war would not be taken. Um, Now, sure, Russia has cultural ties, Russia has linguistic ties, historical ties to Ukraine. And yes, Vladimir Putin has made lots of comments contesting whether uh, Ukraine is even a separate nation. But I think that's smoke and mirrors. And what the Russians care about, and they made it clear over and over again, is that Host forces of what they perceive as a hostile military alliance have been moved not only to the very borders of Russia, um, and indeed, in the case of the Baltic states, taking in three states that were actually part of the Soviet Union. But they made made a lot of noise about that. They made it clear that they didn't uh, that they objected to that. But Ukraine has always been in a separate category. And American policymakers know this. Let's go back to how this issue actually became alive uh, as, as a real world issue, not just a hypothetical. In preparation for the 2008 NATO summit in Bucharest, the George W. Bush administration decided that at that summit, That NATO would offer membership to Ukraine. Now, during the debates inside the administration before the Bucharest summit, the then U.S. ambassador to Russia, William Burns, who is now director of the Central Intelligence Agency, sent a memo to sent a memo to Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, and he said, and I believe it's a direct quote, that offering you. NATO membership to Ukraine would cross, quote, the reddest of Russia's red lines. So American policymakers understood that Ukraine NATO expansion was never going to get people in the Kremlin to stand up and clap and say, oh, this is great. But they accepted it, they accepted it in other places. They did not accept it with respect to Ukraine for lots of reasons. I think Americans are sort of naive about this. I think a better way of, of approaching this is let's ask what would happen in a hypothetical situation that China and Mexico signed a military alliance agreement and that Chinese troops and weapons were deployed. Uh, along the Rio Grande River. Now, what would the reaction in the United States be? The Russians could say, oh, we're just protecting Mexico, our ally. I don't think that would be the reaction of the United States. The reaction of the United States would be to see another great power intruding on America's sphere of influence as a threat. And, you know, this isn't a hypothetical. We have enough real-world experiences to know. You know World War I, the event that probably gave the decisive push to American uh, intervention in war was the so-called Zimmerman telegram, which was sent by the German foreign minister of the same name to the government of Mexico. It was intercepted by British intelligence and delivered to the White House. And in that telegram, the German foreign minister offered to form a military alliance with Mexico if Mexico would join um, uh, Germany in World War I. And that if Germany won the war, it would give back certain territories, which the United States had taken from Mexico after the war between the U.S. and Mexico in 1846 to 48. Um, American public and elite opinion were outraged when the Zimmerman telegram became public. Look at the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, the Russians tried to establish a military outpost 90 miles from the coast of Florida. And we know how the U.S. responded to that. So why do we think that Russia as a great power would respond any differently with respect to the extension of American and Western power to an area that, uh, that Russia historically has regarded as at least part of its sphere of influence, if not, if not more. So I think that, that American policymakers are disingenuous disingenuous when they talk about the origins of the current war between Russia and Ukraine. I mean, just this morning, I can't remember which paper it was in, um probably in the New York Times, but I reading about the, a story about the war. And the story, as so many of them do, resort to the phrase, Russia's unprovoked, quote unquote, unprovoked aggression against Ukraine. Well, look, there's no question that Vladimir Putin gave the order in February last year to launch the invasion of Ukraine. So if you're looking at the the immediate cause of the war, sure, that's where it is. But Then you have to go back and ask, how did he get to that point? What caused the Russian government to make a decision that it needed to use military force against Ukraine? And I think we forget and we should not forget that in late 2021, the Russian government sent a diplomatic note to the United States. And uh, that note was a call for the US and Russia to sit down and negotiate a new security arrangement for Europe. And the chief Russian goal in that Uh, which people can find online if they're so interested. And that Russian diplomatic note was to ensure that Ukraine would never become part of NATO. And the U.S. just brushed that aside. And we can go even further back, you know, to um, 1997. George F. Kennan, who most people, I think, rightly consider to be the foremost U.S. expert on Russia during the second half of the 20th century, uh wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times. It was published, I believe, in February 1997, uh, while the uh, push for the first round of NATO expansion was underway. And Kennan warned very eloquently that expanding NATO would have very serious and deleterious effects on U.S.-Russian relations. Now, he did not specifically deal with Ukraine in that op-ed in 1997, because I don't believe that anyone in the foreign policy establishment was actively thinking about pushing NATO expansion to Ukraine at that point. Uh, but Kennan was right that NATO expansion really poisoned post-Cold War relations between the US and Russia. And again, I wanna just point out that American policymakers like William Burns um, understood in 2008 that extending an invitation for um, NATO to uh, admit Ukraine as a member was going to be a serious, disrupting force in U.S.-Russian relations. And the the outcome of that Bucharest summit was the French and the German governments were both aghast at the idea that the U.S. was promoting uh, the idea of Ukrainian membership in NATO, and they blocked that. So the alliance, the Bucharest summit concluded with a communique that was really the worst of both worlds. It did not offer immediate membership or actually what's known as a membership action plan to Ukraine, but it said that ultimately Ukraine would become a member of NATO. So the immediate idea of proceeding with NATO expansion to Ukraine was put on hold. But the idea that Ukraine ultimately would be part of NATO was embraced. And I think the Russians really took that to heart.
0: Um, One, uh, for analytical purposes, alternative histories are sometimes uh, useful. Uh, You mentioned one, which was that if we never Uh, in 2008 at the Bucharest summit announced Ukraine's eventual admission into NATO. This this war might not have happened. Another alternative question, because you you guys are in the the essay, are kind of questioning U.S. support for Ukraine in this war. Another alternative history question is what would the war look like if the United States had kind of stayed out of it or merely provided roughly what other countries are providing? Um, How would the war look, do you think?
1: That's a difficult question. Uh, Answering, you know, hypotheticals is always difficult, John. But I think we can take a stab at it. Um, I don't think the Russians were likely to conquer Ukraine. I mean, we know what happened even before Ukraine was getting this vast infusion of training and intelligence and advanced weapons from NATO. And the Russian offensive, which was designed to take Kiev in a lightning strike, failed before NATO could really step up its its assistance to, um, to the Ukrainians. We know that in March of 2022, possibly because of Turkish diplomacy, that there actually were discussions uh, to end the war. Uh, and President Zelensky at the time, in February and March, made a public statement to the effect that Ukraine was willing to end the war and accept that it not become a member of NATO, and that it, have, it would have neutral status. Um, the Russians, I think, understood, or they should have understood, that their defeat in front of Kiev in, in uh, February, and March, revealed a lot of shortcomings in Russian military power. I don't know how many people remember this, but it really is quite astounding to recall the stories is about this 60 mile long column of Russian troops, and tanks, and artillery and supply trucks that got backed up outside of Kiev. So that, that should never happen in an army that knows what it's doing. So I think a lot of Russian military shortcomings were um, revealed. And I think at that point in time, there was the opportunity to end the fighting on the basis of which President Zelensky acknowledged that Ukraine would be neutral and not become a member of NATO. But the U.S. didn't encourage that to be pursued. You know, we, we followed a different course. And, and I'll just say one other thing. Um, this is a controversial and I don't think we made this point maybe as clearly as we should, uh, in our Harper's article. But we're doing another article for the American conservative, and I think we will try to make this point much more clearly. Look, everyone knows that the United States has possessed extremely accurate intelligence about what the Russians have been thinking and what they were going to do. So the United States intelligence services have penetrated to the highest levels of the Russian national security making, policy making apparatus. Now, we can go back and see President Biden on the, uh, during the run up to the Russian invasion. He warned that the invasion was coming. He warned Russia not to do it. We knew what they were going to do and when they were going to do it. And we also knew why they were going to do it. And that's because the United States did not respond to the Russian diplomatic note in late 2021, uh, calling for discussions about a new security architecture for Europe that, as part of that architecture, would explicitly exclude Ukrainian membership in NATO. So, you know, is there a smoking gun? You know, I used to be a lawyer, and I know that very, long, very seldom is there a case where there's a smoking gun. In most cases, what you have is circumstantial evidence and inference. But we do know, we do know, it's been published in press reports going back to uh, the months leading up to the war. The U.S. has had extremely accurate intelligence. We knew the Russian invasion was coming. We knew when it was coming. We knew why it was coming. So the question I would ask is, with all of that knowledge, why did the United States not say to Russia, well, you know, we don't really want a war, and you should not want a war either, and the Ukrainians should not want a war. Why don't we sit down and discuss these proposals that Russia has made for a post-war security order? No, we didn't get that. What we got was, instead, from the Biden administration and from people like uh, Stoltenberg, who was the NATO general secretary, was this constant reiteration of NATO has an open door membership to policy. We are not going to to membership. We are not going to slam the door to any state that aspires to membership in NATO, including Ukraine. So basically the United States was uninterested or unwilling to even talk about Russian concerns about Ukraine is a member of NATO. And so you can draw your own conclusions about, about how much American policy is responsible for this war.
0: Samuel Sharup in Foreign Affairs argues that even if it goes well, a Ukrainian counteroffensive will not produce a militarily decisive outcome. And he goes further to say that neither side has the ability to achieve a decisive military victory period. And if that's the case, I think one has to wonder about the wisdom of indefinitely supporting Ukraine, which brings us to this question of how to how to resolve the war. It doesn't look like it's going to be won by one side having a superior military or by pushing the front line a little east or a little west. And so it's ultimately going to come down to some kind of compromise, either now or in 10 years when everyone is exhausted. Um, the Biden administration has been very reluctant to talk about any kind of end game, particularly to the Ukrainians. There are some folks who argue the necessary response to the invasion is to eventually get Ukraine NATO membership and a security guarantee. And we've talked a lot about that. Others have suggested pushing for some pledge of neutrality, um, which you've also referenced. Do you see opportunities for diplomatic negotiations to stop the fighting really from, from any angle? What should US policy be here?
1: I think the opportunities to stop the fighting are very limited, barring some unforeseen event. Uh, Basically, the opportunity was either before the Russians invaded, when we were aware of what their concerns were, or in February and March last year, when, in fact, there were some discussions uh, between Ukraine and Russia about ending the war. That was the time to do it. Uh, today, I think the the bitterness and the emotions of the war on both this, the Ukrainian side and the Russian side are so great that it'd be very hard to end this. Um, and looking at the long term, I think what what have we accomplished? Actually, I think what we've accomplished is to create sort of a new Alsace-Lorraine in the heart of East Central Europe. Whatever side does not come out, quote unquote, victorious in this war is unlikely to be happy with the outcome. And whether it's 10 years or 20 years, or 50 years or 100 years from now, um, they're likely to try and do something about that. So I think we've created a, a, a very long term source of tension and friction. Uh, in European security affairs, uh, you know, I, I think that it's highly unlikely that the U.S. is going to—I mean, we've said so—that we're not going to push our terms on Ukraine. That Ukraine has to decide on its own on what basis it will end the war, and we will support them. Well, we know what Ukrainian's basis for ending the war is now. It's as President Zelensky and his foreign minister said: every inch of Ukrainian territory occupied by Russia must be returned to Ukraine. And that includes Crimea, which is historically Russian, predominantly Russian speakers and uh, a source of significant importance to the Russians, uh, not just strategically, but culturally and historically. So if if that's the only way to sit down and negotiate a peace settlement, the Russians are never going to agree to that. Um, And I don't know whether Zelensky is uh, serious or whether he's just stating maximalist demands now with the idea that they'll negotiate later. But, but um, there's supposed to be a presidential election in Ukraine in 2024. And given the domestic political discourse in Ukraine about Ukrainian war aims, I think if Zelensky actually entered into a, quote, peace agreement, unquote, that did not re- result in the return of all of Ukraine's territory, I think the best case scenario for him would be that he would not get reelected. And I can imagine worst case scenarios for him. So I just don't see that, uh, that there's a lot of flexibility. I don't think the Russians will ever give up their claim to Crimea. So you have the, right now these two states that have mutually exclusive aims in the war. And you also have the United States slash NATO sort of playing this exacerbating role by giving the Ukrainians the weapons, the training, the intelligence to continue carrying out the war in the hope that maybe they can achieve their maximal objectives.
0: Well, if we can't, move to negotiate peace, I guess policymakers are largely left with managing the risks of of escalation. Uh, You and Ben wrote that with the exception of the Cuban Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the risks of catastrophic and potentially nuclear escalation between the US and Russia is greater than at any point in history. Um, How do you think about escalation here and, and particularly the nuclear factor?
1: Well, we discussed this in our article, and I think it's a fair statement to say that uh, Ben and I are extremely concerned about the risks of escalation. And let's just go back to, uh, I believe it was, uh, today is Thursday, I think it was Tuesday's New York Times had a front page article about the Biden administration's thinking about this exact issue, the risk of escalation. We know that at certain points during the war, um, the Ukrainians have made a, a case to be given more advanced weaponry, whether it was HIMARS, whether it's uh, more tanks, uh, whether now it's F 16s. And at every juncture, the Biden administration hesitated because they were worried about the same issue it was like, how far can we go? In giving Ukraine more advanced weaponry before we hit a Russian red line that, uh, provokes Russian escalation. Um, now, you know, the Russians have, have not escalated to the best of our knowledge to this point. Um, and so they've sort of, it appears, acquiesced in most of these Uh, decisions by the U.S. and NATO to give more advanced weapons to Ukraine. But nobody knows how far that can go before we do, in fact, hit a Russian red line. This New York Times article was very interesting because it, it portrayed a Biden administration that has decided that when Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin threatened certain responses in certain responses to NATO's provision of advanced weaponry to Ukraine. He never did anything. He's made these threats a number of times. He's never done anything to back them up. And so the conclusion of the Biden administration is that the risks of escalation are actually very low, and that should not be a factor now in influencing our decisions about what kinds of weapons we give to Ukraine, what kinds of Uh, outcomes in a war we support that are favorable to Ukraine. Now, one caveat. As I already discussed, it's been pretty clear in this war that the U.S. has had extremely good intelligence about Russian decision making. Uh, So it's possible, though it was not indicated in this New York Times piece, that maybe this conclusion... On the part of the Biden administration, the Russians are just bluffing. We shouldn't worry about escalation. Let's just keep giving the Ukrainians more and more and help them, quote unquote, win the war. And American policymakers now talk openly about helping Ukraine, quote unquote, win the war. Now, if, if we know because we have intelligence sources with the information that the Russians are not going to escalate, that there are, in fact, no red lines that would provoke a response from them. Well, I guess we can afford to be complacent. But unless we have extremely high confidence in high-grade intelligence that points in that direction, this idea that the, seems to now have taken hold in the minds of the Biden administration that the United States can keep upping the ante in this war without provoking any kind of escalation from the Russians, I think that's dangerous. I think that's very dangerous. Um, to me, I'll just say this. I don't think we say it quite so boldly in, in this article. But if the Ukrainian counteroffensive were to result in Ukraine overrunning Crimea and retaking Crimea, or threatening to retake Crimea, I think that would provoke serious response from the Russians. I think there still are real red lines out there, uh, some of which we should know, others which we may not know. But you've got two nuclear armed great powers, the U.S. and Russia, uh, and fighting a proxy war against one another. And we just don't know where that line is drawn, that if it's crossed, will lead to the kind of escalation that nobody in their right mind should want to see.
0: Christopher Lane, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much for asking me, John.